Hello all, this is Monica Bellavan. Welcome to Intermezzo number six, a look at morphology as such. Last episode focused specifically on Malevich's study of how visual perception of shape influences what an artist produces. But this study, called morphology, deserves further exploration, and today's episode will be a start on that path, as it is a significant theme to our series. As we explained in our early episodes on Hermann Mutesius, the result of all architecture is material, set into given shapes, serving various functions. Ironically, even this early in the 20th century, Mutesius considered function, that great motif of modernity, to be largely a settled matter. He wanted to address the question of form. The intellectual architects wanted 20th century architecture to be morphologically revived, shaking off the dead shapes of the previous decades. This is one reason why the Bauhaus chose painters as its first faculty, and why we have, in recent episodes, been focusing on visual art. The creation and apprehension of shape is one of the few direct crossovers between architecture and art. One of the things that makes Malevich so important is that he not only bridges the worlds of painting and architecture of two and three dimensions, he also stands astride the separation of the functional and morphological. In other words, he fuses the qualitative and the quantitative in a nearly seamless way. Function is amenable to mathematical analysis and measurement. Form must be apprehended through independent judgment. Malevich was using quantified qualities, elements of form, to achieve transformative results in the consciousness and behavior of his students. Observing the lab results, he reported, one wonders at the latent power in the world around us. We are bathed in shapes and additional elements. Not only does form as a design choice engage much of the architectural discipline, it impacts our daily lives. And if Malevich is to be believed, the shapes around us influence who we become and how we express ourselves. Morphology is a direct loanword from the Greek, meaning simply the study of form. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe formulated the first explicit theories of morphology in the late 18th century. Inspired by examining the cyclopean contours of an elephant's skull, he made a comparative study of jawbones in various species, through which he was able to detect a distinct evolution of shape. He proved that the intermaxillary, a feature of the jaw once thought to be absent in humans, was indeed present, thereby linking humanity to the animal kingdom in a direct, developmentally physical way that Darwin's theory would later expand upon. On the part of the English naturalist, the changed shape in the beaks of Galapagos finches, for example, was central to the development of the theory of natural selection. Goethe eventually concluded that the study of changing shapes over history or time could reveal origins and destiny, in a similar way to how someone can see the flight path of a ball through the air and judge where it was thrown, where it will land, and how hard it was thrown. Goethe was fascinated by the shapes of plants as they grew, 
and became obsessed with finding a common ancestor to them, the so-called Urpflanze. While he was never able to do this by investigation of shape, he found that he was developing a theory potentially more valuable, namely an understanding of how the process of botanical development unfolded. He developed not necessarily a causal, but rather a descriptive theory of plant growth, seeing all shapes within a plant as elaboration of a leaf. A stem was a leaf with an elongated base. A flower was a concentric repetition of a leaf. A stem was a leaf with an elongated base. A flower was a concentric repetition of a leaf. And in the branching and growth of plants, from the dicot seed to the outward spiraling of branches, this is indeed a useful way of understanding plant growth. The time-lapse films of plants that came more than a century after Goethe's death continue to show this. In the 1920s, Louis Sullivan's final book was a meditation on this process of organic seed and growth as directly applied to what had, up to that point, been considered abstract geometry. Regarding the roots of architecture, connections to plants are well-known and ancient. It is extremely likely that the first shelters ever built by humans used plants and mimicked the interlocking canopy of trees. Primal cultures that have continued into modern times have evidenced this type of building. As soon as stone came into use, however, the relation to plants became more complicated. A split developed, often overlooked, that is still with us today. Egyptian and Greek architecture in stone, for example, had some qualities true to the stone itself. Think of how the Mycenaean beehive tombs resembled natural piles of stone or a cave, though smoothed out and regularized. The same is true for analogizing a pyramid to a mountain. It is not a resemblance to the natural world that makes these structures organic architecture but how they share the same system of resolution of environmental forces. They solve similar problems in similar ways. Thus, morphologically speaking, organic architecture will always look significantly different from its natural counterpart. By contrast, the acanthus leaf ornamentation on the Corinthian column, or the papyrus column of Egypt, did not contain the behavioral or morphological qualities of the plants. They represented the quality as image, as symbol. The beehive tomb is to a cave as the human intermaxillary is to the elephant's jaw. It is a smoothed-out refinement, and the connection between the two is not just one of shape. It is largely in how the requirements and forces the quantifiable functions act in concert to synthesize the form expressed in the jaw. Continuing this analogy, something like the decorated Greek and Egyptian columns would be akin to an elaborate elephant mask, a sculpture or painting of an elephant. Both the morphological bioanalogy and the visual biomimicry have value and are important. Much of the history of art is biomimicry. 
But we must be aware of the distinction. How much of our buildings do we wish to be syntactic mimicry, and how much do we wish to be organic morphology? Malevich was notable for removing biomimicry from his art altogether. The black square stands as a work of shape as such. A fascinating aspect of morphology is how it stands as a distinct type of study from much of what the 19th and 20th century have left us. We at Lapsus Lima like to think it represents an epistemological shift, a different type of knowledge. While function creates the field of requirements, arriving at form through calculation alone leads to unsatisfactory results. We all know this by looking at architecture today, and Hermann Mutesius could have told us well ahead of time. As we move forward into our exploration of the late 20th century, the quantitative approach to function will become clearly exhausted and qualitative methods will be asserted, all of them rooted back in the morphology of Goethe. In the meantime, stay tuned as we continue with our study of Malevich, trying to bottle up the rocketry of formal synthesis, next time on Lapsus Lima. <laughs>